Welcome to Foothills Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Doug Peak. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit foothills.org. Well, welcome everyone to Foothills Christian Church, all of you here on our main campus. Especially if you're visiting with us, we're just so glad you're here. We have room for you. Church is not limited by a structure. It's a community of people, and we have a place for you to not only engage with Jesus Christ, but to build friendships that encourage you in your journey of faith. All of you doing church at home, uh, I want to welcome you as well and challenge you to reach out to your neighbors and friends, invite them into your house to participate in church at home. Keep it small because that's why you're doing it, but build community because we are facing changes in this world like we've never faced before. And these changes are having dramatic impact on our lives. As I said last week, one of the most difficult for me is no college football. Other than the SEC and the Big 12, I mean, there's no Boise State football. There's no, I I don't know what I'm going to do. I guess I'm just going to fast and pray more often on Saturdays. So maybe have friends over. I don't know. But there's so much change going on. I know a lot of people in high school are like, we just want to be able to play sports again. A lot of parents are like, how do I homeschool my kids virtually while I have a full-time job? It just seems that we can't escape the constant upheaval and change happening in our world because of COVID, but also because our our society has put so much faith in institutions and these institutions weren't prepared or, or maybe they couldn't have ever even been prepared or maybe we put too much faith in what they could actually do. And so what we're discovering now is that our lives are so filled with change. We have to manage this change. We have to approach this change. And so we're studying the life of Joseph to see what we can discover all about change. It's in Genesis chapter 37 through 45. If you're new to our church, one of the things I like to do is tell people, read this section of the Bible as many times as you can during the week. Read it two or three times. It's not long, but the more you read it, the more you understand it and the more you get out of it. And then we kind of preach through it over the course for this series, six weeks long. Now, we've had this principle that comes out of this story that applies to us today, and that is this. My attitude towards change impacts the effect change has on me. Now, the reason why these are underlined and bolded is because if you download the phone app, if you're here on the main campus, or if you're doing church at home, you can download the church's app either through Android uh, or Google Play or the App Store on Apple, and you can follow along, and these notes have blanks, and you can fill them in as you go. It has all the scriptures, all the main statements, and it even allows you to take your own notes. And then when you're done, you can email it to you. You can print them off and put it in a journal, whatever you like to do. Now, the whole point about this is that my attitude towards change impacts my life more than I can imagine. And the reason why is because the way we approach change, the way we deal with change, the kind of uh, uh, attitudes uh, and, uh, that have been developed in our family of origin really impact how stressful this change is in our lives. And if we can step back and say, God, how do you change my attitude, work on my attitude, then what you find, that's when God does his best work in 
your faith. So we've been studying Joseph. I want to bring you up to speed here real quick if you're just with us for the first time. And that is Joseph is one of 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob is the grandson of father Abraham. Now, Joseph, very young, was kind of annoying because he was a favorite of his dad. But add to that, he could interpret dreams. And so he interpreted a couple dreams about his family that made him very unpopular. So his brothers resented him. They uh, found him out in the wild at 17. They beat him up, threw him into a deep well, and then they sold him to a bunch of Ishmaelites or Midianites that were traveling to Egypt. And they sold him to Potiphar, head of Pharaoh's guard. And there he was enslaved. Now, while he was there, he became very adept and he kind of grew up and he started managing the whole house for Potiphar. Potiphar's wife took an interest in him, propositioned him. He said no. She got mad, falsely accused him of rape. So Potiphar sends him to prison. He languishes in prison for like 10 years. Well, eventually, Pharaoh has a dream. Somebody remembered Joseph's ability finds himself in the blink of an eye before the Pharaoh, interprets the dreams, gives counsel, and now he's second in command. What a dramatic shift. He shifts from slavery to the second most powerful in Egypt. He has seven years of plenty that he manages, then there's seven years of famine. In the seven years of plenty, he wants to set aside enough for all of Egypt to survive and thrive. He gets married, has two kids. Things are going so good for him. His first son, he names Manasseh, which comes from the Hebrew root to forget. And so he's saying, I can now forget the troubles of my father's household. That's his exact words. The other son is called Ephraim, which comes from the Hebrew word, Hebrew word or root, twice fruitful. And what he means by that is, I have now become fruitful in my new land. So you would say Joseph is riding high, and then chapter 42, a curveball comes. And here it is. Beginning with verse 1, the story flips back to Jacob, Joseph's dad. Now, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, this is during the seven years of famine, he says to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? So I don't know if you ever talked to one of your own children that way. Why are you standing around staring at each other when the table needs to be cleaned off? You know, get busy. So he looks at his sons and rebukes them. Then he continues, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there, buy some for us so that we may live and not die. He then sends all 10 sons down there, but he keeps Benjamin, Joseph's full brother, back because he's like... Joseph was my favorite. He's gone. Now, Benjamin is the only one that I have left that's my favorite. So what happens then is all 10 brothers go to Egypt. And when they get there, something really amazing happens. Joseph sees his family, verse 6. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all of its people. When Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. 
but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Now, later on, what we find out is he speaks to them in Egyptian and the interpreter interprets into Hebrew. And so this is one of the ways that he propagates his anonymity, okay? And he says to them, where do you come from? He asks, from the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognizes his brothers, they did not recognize as him. And so he remembered his dreams about them and then said to him, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. So what he's doing is he's accusing them because there's 10 of them. And it's like, why are they 10 different people? I mean, these are 10 men. They're all capable Wow. And they're saying, no, we're not representing a culture or society. We're from one family. We're all related. That's why there's so many of us. All right. And he says, this is your, he says to them, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. So he's trying to say we're one family. Your servants are honest men. We're not spies. And he says, no, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. Now, this is a little tongue-in-cheek because if you're familiar with your ancient Egyptian history, which I'm sure all of you are, you know, this is about 2000 BC, 2000 years before Christ was born. And at this particular time, the largest empire, the most powerful empire in this entire area, all of Northern Africa, all of the Middle East, even along uh, the uh, Italy and uh, where Greece and Athens and all those places are, all of that, Macedonia, this entire Mediterranean region, Egypt is the strongest and most powerful across the board. So he says to them, you've come to see where we're weak. But he, they replied, notice how here they say, we are what? Sons of one man. So they're kind of vague. But now notice how they get specific. He says, no, we were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. So now they're getting more specific. Okay. So then what happens is you would think at this point, Joseph might say, Hey guys, look, it's Joseph. I'm so glad to see you, but that's not what happens. Joseph gets weird. Well, let me rephrase that. He gets really weird, but you're going to see kind of why, because something is emerging in this story that is being recalled for the Israelites who read it. Let's go on and find out what happens. Joseph says to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brothers. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. So he throws them all in custody for three days. This is early on in the book of Genesis where we start to see this pattern emerging of three days. His brothers are three days in prison. Now let's look at what happens next. On the third day, Joseph says to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison. And while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving households, you notice how his language now is starting to soften a little bit. He's saying, you know, I know your family is starving. 
He says, you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. And this they proceeded to do. So Joseph acts really weird. He accuses them of being spies. He throws them in jail for three days. And then he comes back three days later, says, okay, I'll let you all go but one. And then what I'd like you to do is bring your youngest brother back. It seems kind of odd, but the brothers then start to connect the dots. Okay. So verse 21 says the following, they said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Don't forget, he was 17 years old when they sold him into slavery. He was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh. There were seven years of prosperity. So then the famine comes. So there was at least 20 years had passed between when they sold him into slavery and they're standing before him. Now, that's a long time. And they're saying, because of what we did over 20 years ago, this distress has come upon us. 22, Reuben replied, didn't I tell you? Now, this is Reuben, the older brother. And if you remember early on in this series, I described Reuben as the firstborn of all of Jacob's sons. And what he said is he talked them not into killing Joseph, but throwing him into a pit so that he could sneak back, pull him out of the pit and give him back to his father. However, his brothers sold him into slavery before he could come back at night and rescue him. So basically, this is like a 25-year I told you so. <laughs> you know, like you go to family reunion and your mom or your dad or one of your brothers or a nephew, you know, says from something 25 years ago, says, says, see, I told you so. And you're like, man, you waited a long time to say I told you so. Well, that's Reuben. He goes, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you would not listen? Now we must give an accounting for his blood. Verse 23 says, they did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. So he turns away from them and he begins to weep. So much forgetting the trouble of your father's household and naming your firstborn child Manasseh. Boy, it came back 25 years later, pretty fresh and pretty raw. He turns back to them and he speaks to them again. He says, and then he had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Why is Simeon? No one knows. The Bible doesn't tell us. My personal opinion is this, is that Simeon was the one who started the conversation. Hey, let's get rid of our brother and throw him in the pit and then sell him to the Midianites. So I don't know. Maybe Simeon's mouth got him in trouble 25 years before, but he was the one who was chosen. Then what happens is in verses 25 through 28, Joseph kind of swings to the total opposite direction of where he was before. Joseph gives orders to fill their bags with grain. So fill them up with all the grain they can carry that they came to buy, but... He does something really odd. Put each man's silver back in his sack. So take all the money that they used to pay for the grain 
and put it back in the sacks. It's not interesting. He says, also give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw silver in the mouth of his sack. Oh my goodness, this is the money that I paid for this grain, and now it's in the sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brother. Here it is in my sack. Now, if you were one of these brothers or you were this guy and you found all the money you had just paid for your new car in the glove box of your new car, wouldn't you go, oh yeah, it's my birthday, feeling good, party town. But that's not what these guys did. What happened? Their hearts sank. Their hearts sank. They turned to each other trembling. And notice the phrasing of this. They don't say, what did the Egyptians do to us or what's going on? They start to see something much bigger happening and they don't know what it is. What is this that God has done to us? What a powerful observation. Then in verses 29 through 38, they return home. They tell Jacob about everything that happened. And they said, all we need to do is take Benjamin and go back. And Simeon will come home, all of us together, one big happy family. But he refuses because he's so afraid. Even though they had seen all of their silver returned and all their grain given, they couldn't receive this as a good thing. They only received it as bad. And I believe that's because of the guilt that they were all experiencing and it was Jacob's grief that stopped him from seeing. Notice what Reuben says at the very end in verses 37 and how Jacob responds in 38. This is what he says. Reuben says to his father, you may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring Simeon back to you and Benjamin and trust him to my care and I will bring him back. But Jacob says, my son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. What he's saying is, this will kill me. Now we're going to stop the story here and we'll pick up next week with what happens next. But here we begin to see two very important themes start to bubble up in this story, and we see why it is in the Bible. The first one is this, and that is God's will, his ultimate will, is the redemption of all things. Now, how do we know that this is the theme that's bubbling up? Well, the first thing is this, is that the Bible is 66 books long. Now, it's not a novel, it's not a little trilogy of books, but it's actually 66 different books. So let's say, for instance, you're really interested in horse husbandry. You want to breed horses. So you go to the library and you say, hey, I'd like to look at the books you have on where horses came from, what's their genetic disposition, how do you breed them, what's the best way to take care of them, protect their bloodlines, what do you feed them so they stay healthy, stuff like that. So the librarian takes you over and says, okay, this 
section is books on horse husbandry. And there's a whole bunches of them written by all different authors. Now, they all have different perspectives. They all have different approaches. But ultimately, they're all about one thing. And that is horse husbandry. So you might find in there a cowboy poet wrote a bunch of poems about how to breed horses, you know, and they all rhyme and they fit together. You might find some rap songs that were written about how to feed horses property. You're going to find technical journals. You're going to find all kinds of ancestral books and DNA track. You're going to find all these different things, but they all have one thing in common. And that is they're all about horse husbandry. The Bible is similar to that. It's 66 different books written by different authors, and it's a library from beginning to end. And it all focuses on one theme. And you know what that one theme is? That one theme is the redemption of God. You see, in the book of Genesis, what you see is you see paradise in the Garden of Eden, but paradise is lost. Then in the book of Revelation, you see paradise restored So everything in between is how God redeems creation, how God redeems human beings that have lost paradise. And that's the story of the Bible. It is the story of redemption. God's redemption is for individuals first. The story of the Bible is how human beings have struggled You see, when you read the Old Testament, which is the first section of the Bible, you see how people tried to be redeemed by their own devices and it never worked. It's just a mess. I mean, you want to know where they got the idea for modern day soap operas for during the day? They got it from the Old Testament. It just goes on and on. It's just like craziness. Then the New Testament is when Jesus begins when Jesus was born. And what we see is the Messiah, the one who is going to come and open the door and show us the path to redemption and how redemption actually works. God not only redeems individuals, he redeems relationships. He redeems families. He redeems marriages. He redeems communities, even creation itself. When you read the very end of the book of Revelation, what you see is a restoration of creation itself. There is a new heaven and a new earth. You see, God's not just redeeming us spiritually. He has come to redeem everything about our reality. This is important to know that God's ultimate will for your life in this world is redemption because knowing his ultimate will impacts how you face change. You see, if you misunderstand God's ultimate will, then facing change may become more difficult than you ever imagined. What do I mean by that? Well, knowing that right now, your approach to facing change has been influenced by your past is a truth you should consider. Let me phrase it this way. The way you were raised, the things that have happened in your past are influencing how you feel about all of this change and disruption in life right now. All of that influences it. And so your response to COVID conundrum and how it's impacted your life is directly related to what has happened 
in your past. If you're easily stressed out, you don't like change, guess what? This really upsets you. If you're a person that has a limit and then, then you go over that limit, you're fine, and then you kind of volcano, that happens. The divorce rate has gone up 34% in the last six months. The marriage rate has gone up in the last six months. What does that tell you? Well, it tells us that people want to remove uncertainty. People don't know what's going to happen. And so they're trying to do everything they can right now as fast as possible. Why are they doing that? Because their past influences their response to COVID. And guess what? A crisis of faith is occurring in a lot of people. And this crisis of faith and all this change is a direct result of an immature knowledge of God's ultimate will. Ouch. Should I say that again? Let me say it again. A crisis of faith is a direct result of an immature knowledge of God's will. Let me explain it this way. If your perspective is that God's ultimate will for your life is to remove all of your problems, what happens when you have problems? God, why aren't you doing your job? If you believe that God's ultimate will for your life is to provide all your material needs, what happens when the paycheck runs out and the rent's due? God, why aren't you doing your job? What happens if you believe God's job is to validate you in what you want to do so that you feel good about your own decisions? Guess what? You make decisions and you don't feel good about yourself. So this Christian thing just doesn't work or God's not real. Well, the truth is God hasn't changed. You're in a crisis of faith. It's not God's fault. It's because you don't understand that what God's ultimate will for your life is to redeem you. And what that means is that means going into the very depth of your soul and healing and restoring all of the wounds your soul has experienced. And so what we see now is the second theme that starts to emerge, and that is the messianic process. This is the how God redeems you. We, we see it initiated in this way. God, uh, or in Joseph's life, what happens? He thought that he was fine, right? Well, I named my son Manasseh. I have forgotten the trouble of my father's household. I named my second son fruitful because look how fruitful and how well I'm doing. And then his brothers walk through the door and what happens? He's undone. His brothers, 25 years later, they look back and they go, you know why we're having problems right now? Because of what we did 25 years ago. Could you imagine living in Reuben's household? I mean, Reuben felt so guilty that he couldn't solve the problem. He's probably carried this guilt over and over again so that everything in his life was a result of that thing. Could you imagine one year they lose their crops and they don't go, you know why we lost our crops this year? Because we treated my brother poorly. When they lose, a bear comes out, a lion comes out, eats some of their, their livestock. You know why that happened? Because we mistreated my brother. One year his wife burns the soup because we treated my brother poorly. Isn't that interesting how guilt does that to you? Guilt changes the way you view 
reality. So at its core, you know what redemption has to do? It has to enter into the very depth of your soul and let you realize in the safety of God that you're wounded, that your heart is wounded by sin. It's been scarred by sin. Yeah, you could say other people have influenced that, but in the end, I'm the one who made the choices to do what I did, and I'm accountable for that. The brothers carried the guilt of their injustice, and Joseph carried the wound of their injustice. And because of that, redemption always begins, always begins with the realization of the wound. You have to realize not only that you've been wounded by sin, but that you are filled with it. The second step that happens in the messianic process is simply this. And that is, once you realize the wound, redemption then can start to free you from the bondage or oppression of that because it is healing you. It is healing you from the impact of sin in your life. Whether you received or were victimized by the sin of somebody else or your own flaws and mistakes, you can be healed from them. Notice how it wasn't enough for Joseph to name his son forgetfulness and say, I'm doing great now. He couldn't just move on. Time did not heal the wound of his soul. His brothers walked through the door and he is undone. Jesus said this. He said in John 8, 36, the son, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus says, if the son, meaning himself, sets you free, you will be free indeed. What does he mean by that? Well, this is what he means by that, is we look to the world to heal our souls. Sometimes we look for time to heal all wounds and it doesn't happen. Sometimes we turn to relationships in love. Wow, this person, this new person loves me and is gonna help me heal. Uh, I've been single for so long, I finally found the love of my life. Sometimes we look towards work or we look towards material things or we look towards uh, uh, politics or we look for, towards social movements. We look towards all of these things to heal our soul. And you know what the truth is? they're never healed. The soul's never healed. And so we carry that pain. Jesus said, if you want to heal your soul, the son must be the one to set you free. That's where it begins. See, God's overarching will is to redeem you and to redeem the world. And it begins with us as individuals recognizing our wound and asking Christ and Christ alone to set us free. Until that happens, nothing will change. And then in the process that he shows us in this story, we'll pick up more on it next week. But what we see is that redemption starts to grow because it's healthy. Redemption grows you as an individual because it's healthy. Notice how Joseph started to change. He went from your spies, I'm throwing you in prison for three days. And then later you see him kind of softening. And then you see him become gracious. Notice how the three days in prison is direct correlation to the three days that Jesus spent in the grave. You see, we're seeing this messianic process 
this theme bubble up in this ancient story in the Old Testament. So redemption can grow you because it has healed you from the inside out. That's how your relationships are transformed. That's how societies are transformed. That's how creation itself will be redeemed. Jesus tells a parable in the New Testament called the parable of the sower. And the sower takes seed, he goes out and he throws it out there. Some lands in uh, the, the rocky path, right? Some lands in the weedy path, some lands in the good soil, you know, the rich soil. The stuff that lands in the weeds gets choked out. Uh, the stuff on the paths springs up and then is scorched by the sun. But the good soil does what? It produces a harvest uh, that is multiplied 30, 60, and 90 fold. So you think about yourself, what really makes good soil? You know, at one time that soil that that seed fell into, it wasn't good soil. And how do you make regular soil into good soil? Well, coming from Kansas, I remember a little bit about how to do this. Well, the first thing they do is they take this gigantic tiller and it has these big, heavy discs. And what they do is they disc the field and it just slices it up. And then they run it back, it just slices it up. And then they have these uh, times that come by and they, it just turmoil, I mean, it's just turmoil and it just breaks it all up because it's been so settled. Has your life felt like this and changed? And all this change going on, do you feel like your life is being disced? That it's just being turned up and churned over? You feel like, I don't know what I'm going to do next. There's another change coming down. Here comes the big tiller. They're, they're going to disc me again from the other angle. Is that what's going on? Well, you feel, sometimes you feel that way. Well, that's the first step of making good soil. Things get changed up. And you know what the second step of good soil is? Manure. Yeah. Have you ever seen a manure spreader? Those things are, are amazing, man. They pull behind this big old tractor, this big machine, and you know what they fill it up with? Cow. I'm trying to think of a word that I can say here. Manure. The stuff that comes out of the tail end of the cow. And they just fill that stuff up in there, and then they water it down. And then they drive that thing, and you know what it does? It just flings manure everywhere. The one place you do not ever want to be is behind a manure spreader, okay? Not a good place to be. You feel like right now your life is, I'm behind the manure spreader. If, if God's will for your life is that you never smell like manure or your life is never turned up by turmoil, then you're going to sit there in a disc field covered in manure, angry that God is not doing his job. But if God's will is to redeem, is to redeem not just you, but everything around you and the world in which you live, then you start to realize that God is going to come through and he's going to take these horrible things and it's going to work into this soil. And God's redeeming love works it all in together. Manure doesn't do anything if it just lays on top. It just stinks. It's, you, God works it in there. And this is the most incredibly beautiful thing about the power of the blood of Jesus Christ is it can take even the worst things, work it into the soil of your life and redeem it and bring forth good 
fruit. That is the power over evil that Satan hates. Satan uses evil to destroy your life, to discourage your life. God, through the blood of his sacrifice, can redeem and heal and set you free. My friends, now is the time for you to experience God's ultimate will for your life. Now is the time for you to experience redemption. Now is the time to no longer live in fear of the world in which you live because it's always going to be filled with tillers, discs, and manure. That's never going away until the last chapter in the book of Revelation when the new earth comes. Until then, God's will is redemption, redemption, redemption. Live in redemption. Walk in redemption. Embrace redemption. Let redemption be God's will for your life every moment of every day. Now let's let Pastor Harv tell us steps we can take to be redeemed people. Thank you for listening to this Sermon of the Week. Video footage of this sermon and others can be found on foothills.org.